The Nationals are back home, and Walters is the place to be. Swing by before the game for a cold one, or come afterwards to catch late-night NBA playoffs. Head over to waltersdc.com slash reservations to secure your reservation for this week. Walters is a great option, not only during Nats games, but also to watch Euro 2020 matches. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The pause, the kick, and the pitch. Swing and a ground ball right side. Second baseman Garcia has it. Plenty of time. Short throw to Mercer. Get out your brooms. A curly W and a sweep in the books. As the Nationals sweep the series for the Pirates, match their longest winning streak of the year. Four in a row. They've won five out of six. And Brad Hand's 13th save and 15 tries preserves the first major league win for right-hander Paolo Espino, who pitched five shutout innings in the start here this afternoon. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, June 17th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We have a special guest coming up later in the show, Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. He's also the host of a podcast, Black Diamonds, which focuses on the history of the Negro Leagues. We're going to talk Josh Gibson and Homestead Grays with Bob Kendrick. Uh, Gibson and the Grays, of course, two very important pieces when it comes to the history of baseball in Washington, D.C., a history that, you know, obviously is not just about Walter Johnson, Frank Howard, Max Scherzer. Josh Gibson very much deserves to be remembered, and remember him we shall with Bob Kendrick. And I tell you what, years from now, the name Paolo Espino deserves to be remembered for what he's doing for the 2021 Washington Nationals. Five scoreless innings in a magnificent spot start on Wednesday, a 3-1 win over the Pittsburgh Pirates. The Nationals complete the sweep. The Nationals have won four straight. The Nationals have won six of eight. And dare I say, they go into their biggest season of the series so far, a four-game set over the course of three days against the National League East leading New York Mets with some momentum on their side. How do you like that, Mark? Paolo Espino and Walter Johnson. Can we make the comp? Big game Paolo. I think so. (laughs) They're getting the statue ready for him outside. Hey, this start was, you know, two months in the making for us because we've been talking about him since he made his season debut, but it was 15 years in the making for Paolo Espino. He was drafted by Cleveland in 2006. Didn't make his major league debut until 2017 with the Brewers. Spent three more years in the minors before the Nats called him up last year. He just made two quick appearances at the end of last year. And now, finally, finally, his first big league win. I know we're not 
pitcher wins centric here on the podcast. I'm making an exception today. This one is worth talking about because it meant something to 34-year-old Paolo Espino, a 15-year journey to get to this point, and you could tell that this meant something to him. We will make the exception for Paolo on this podcast. If we're ever going to make the exception, this is the spot in which to make the exception. And, you know, with Paolo, I mean, we have fun with it because of the name, because of the look, because of kind of who he is, right? A journeyman. I mean, it says a lot about the Nationals' lack of starting pitching depth that when Steven Strasburg got hurt the first time this season, it was Paolo Espino who was summoned to make the spot start. But let's bottom line it here. He is doing a great job on the season. And the job he did in this game on Wednesday, and I know the Pirates are atrocious, okay? I mean, let's make that crystal clear. But still, for Paolo to go out there, we were talking on the last installment of the podcast of, all right, maybe Paolo, Jeffrey Rodriguez, they combined for five innings or six innings. Paolo goes out there and on his own, five shutout innings, two strikeouts versus three hits, which were two doubles in a single, no walks. He throws just 53 pitches over the five innings. And basically all he did was throw strikes, 39 strikes, versus 14 balls. In in this velocity fixated era in which Major League Baseball exists, a guy like Paolo Espino is a reminder of it's not always about how fast you throw. It's can you locate? Can you be pitch efficient? And Paolo Espino has been those two things. He has been such a good pitcher for the Nationals this season. 27 and two-thirds innings. Guy now has an ERA at 228, a whip of 0.80. Like we have fun with this, but the truth is he's done a great job for the Nats. He has absolutely done a great job, and it's a thankless job that they ask him to do. This is not something that every pitcher can do. Be the swing man, the long man, the mop-up man, make an emergency appearance, emergency start, emergency relief. There actually are not that many guys who are good at this because you have to be ready at a moment's notice for anything. And what you're going to be asked to do on any given night may be different than what you're asked on any other night. I think we talked about the the Miss Iowa story with Miguel Batista earlier in the year when Paolo started the game. Batista was a similar kind of pitcher in that it didn't matter what the situation was. He was going to be ready to pitch and he knew what was needed of him on that given night. And that's what Paolo Espino is. His average fastball velocity in this game, Al, was 89.1 miles an hour. <laughs> He's right-handed, remember, not lefty. See, this is one of my big complaints always. You can be left-handed and throw 89, and you're a crafty lefty if you do that. If you're right-handed and you throw 89, you're a junk baller. As a former junk baller myself, I always take offense to that. You should be allowed to be a crafty right-hander. Paolo Espino is a crafty right-hander, and he's an effective right-hander. Like you said, 2-2-8 ERA in over 27 innings now this year. He has been everything they could have asked of him. Remember, that that spot start against uh, the Diamondbacks when he replaced Strasburg the first time he went on the I.L. That just figured to be a one and done. That was it. We'll send you back. No, he did well enough to say, hey, let's hang on to you. Maybe there's some opportunities. And he stuck this out the whole time in the bullpen so that when the time came for another spot start in this game, he was the one they wanted. and He delivered and he deserves to stick around for a lot longer based on what he's done. He walked the tightrope in a scoreless top of the fourth during which he gave up uh, no runs despite giving up a one-out double to Brian Reynolds, followed by a one-out single to Gregory Polanco, who then stole second base. So the Pirates had runners on second and third with one out and yet didn't score. I thought it was watching the Nationals bat, not the Pirates in that (laughs) inning. But Espino, what a job in that inning. He got each of the Pirates' next two batters out, including striking out Phillip Evans, on four pitches. So, you know, you mentioned the word crafty. That was a crafty inning from Paolo. And otherwise, I mean, there really wasn't like a lot of drama in this game with Espino pitching. He just was good. He got outs. He moved the game along. And 
really cannot sing his praises enough uh, with the job that he ended up doing. Now, I, I guess there's only figures to be one star, right? Because we don't think Max Scherzer is going to miss more than the one star, correct? Yeah, they sure hope so. <laughs> they sure hope that Max is back and ready. And the next start, the time this turn would come up, is going to be the Phillies on Tuesday. And you'd love to have Max Scherzer. That'll be his first day that he's eligible to come back. So, yes, you would believe so. But in case anything happens, you know Paolo will be ready for it. Whether it's a spot start, an emergency relief, whatever it might be, he will be ready for it. And uh, like I said, he's not going anywhere. There are other pitchers who are going to be sent down as the big names come off the injured list. He has earned the right to stay on this roster and is doing so on a, you know, on a pitching staff that all of a sudden has been elite and doing this without Scherzer, Strasburg, or Hudson. Okay. Over their last 12 games, national starting pitchers have a 1.19 ERA. Now that includes those like, you know, Scherzer only threw 12 pitches. That counts as a start. Uh, you had the, um, uh, who else had the very short one before coming out? But, you know, so it, these aren't long starts in a lot of cases. But still, 1.19 from your starters. And over the last eight games overall, Nationals relievers have a 2.10 ERA. So everybody's doing this. And again, this is without Scherzer, Strasburg, and Hudson. I cannot stress how important this is for their chances, not just now to get back in the race, but maybe ultimately to actually make a real move here if they can continue to get this and get the big names back at some point off the injured list. Yeah, the run prevention has been there lately. And no doubt about that. The pitching, the defense, the Nationals, we know, are not going to slug their way to victories this season. So if they can just suffocate you from a run prevention standpoint, that's a path to victory. Now, as we've discussed, you know, Giants don't have a great lineup. Pirates obviously don't have a great lineup. So a huge test coming up this weekend. But if the Nats make it through that four-game stretch over three days against the Mets having pitched very well, then at that point you say, all right, this is legit here. Because, you know, like you're piling up series after series now in which the pitching is outstanding. I mean, what the Nats did over the course of the four-game split with the Giants last weekend, the pitching staff as a whole, two runs, one earned in 33 innings. You look at this series in its entirety, this three-game sweep of the Pirates, four runs in 27 innings. That's outstanding. And again, it's like, like you said, it's they're doing it with missing all these key guys. You know, we are not in the midst of Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin in 2019. This is not, you know, Strasburg, Jordan Zimmerman, Gio Gonzalez from years back. Like, this is not your uh, older brother's Nationals rotation we're dealing with here. And yet the Nats are getting the job done. Now, with the bullpen in this win on Wednesday, so four relievers end up combining to allow one run in four innings. Tanner Rainey's uh, resurgence continued. Uh, maybe I shouldn't use that word, but he has been a lot better here lately, a scoreless top of the six. So for Rainey now, that's five scoreless and hitless innings over his last five appearances off that terrible outing in the bullpen game at the Philadelphia Phillies a few Sundays ago there on June 6th. Sam Clay has been better lately. He retired two of the three batters he faced to begin the top of the seventh. Kyle Finnegan did give up a run in the game. Uh, okay, fine. But then you had Brad Hand. Brad Hand, his resurgence continued, a five-out save on Wednesday, retired the two batters he faced in the top of the eighth, then tossed a scoreless top of the ninth, despite a little bit of agita in that inning. He gave up back-to-back two-out singles. But for Hand now, two earned runs in 12 innings over his last 11 appearances. So these guys who, you know, were either struggling or at least made you nervous, like in the case of Hand, you're getting guys settling in, you're getting guys doing good jobs, and the bullpen delivering big time, in addition to our guy Paolo on Wednesday. Yeah, and here's what I thought was the key to putting Hand in a position to be able to do that and really be able to use Rainey the way he did as well. 
Patrick Corbin going eight and a third the night before. And now you only need Justin Miller to close out that game. And so basically everybody was available for this game. And there's a day off following it. So Davey was able to use his bullpen exactly how he wanted. And I thought this was a subtle little thing he did. He used Rainey in the sixth inning. He's been pretty much saving him to be the eighth inning guy now with Hudson out. But it was the top of the Pirates lineup. And those are really the only three hitters that scare you in this lineup. Frazier, Hayes, and Reynolds. And he had Rainey pitch that inning to face the top of the the lineup, then went to Clay and Finnegan for the seventh into the eighth. And then because he knew Hand had a day off and will have another day off, he was perfectly comfortable giving him a five-out save. And I thought that was a, a smart usage of a guy for more than one inning. We've gotten on his case a few times when he's had to use Hand or Hudson multiple innings out of desperation. This was not that. This was an aggressive move when it made sense to do that, and the guy was available to do that, and it worked out beautifully. And Brad Hand is back to being an elite closer again. There were a couple of appearances there in the middle where it went a little haywire, but since then, he has been lights out. How'd you like the double switch by Davey, too? Quite the double switch, quite the managerial game of chess that Davey was involved in on Wednesday. So to allow Hand to pitch multiple innings, Davey actually removed Josh Bell, and because Ryan Zimmerman had already pinch hit, moved Jordy Mercer to first base, inserted Josh Harrison at third base. Nifty maneuvering there by Davey, but it worked. It worked. I was a little bit nervous about that one because, like you said, they had already used up Zim. I mean, if you're going to put Zim in at first base, absolutely. It makes all the sense in the world. And I think we still have not had a game yet this year where Zim has replaced Bell late for defense. I don't think it's happened. And we thought that would actually be a regular occurrence, but it's a testament to Josh Bell, the job that he's done defensively there that they haven't felt the need to do it. But I was a little bit nervous in this case. You're putting Jordy Mercer at first base, and he has a little bit of experience there, but not a lot. You're putting Harrison at third, which he hasn't played much in, at least this year. I think he's going to start playing a lot more, and we're going to get to that story here soon because Starling Castro is no longer on the roster. But it worked out. Uh, Thankfully, it didn't come where that spot in the lineup came up again. But in order to make sure that you were going to get multiple innings from hand, he had to make that move, and, and thankfully it paid off. Yeah, Josh Bell, you know, it's not always pretty, but defensively speaking this season, he came into games on Wednesday with zero defensive runs saved on the season. So he's been a league average defender at first base, which you take in a heartbeat given his defensive history. So, uh, you know, like I said, it's not always to think of beauty with Josh Bell at first base, but he's gotten the job done more often than not. Hey guys, Al Galdi here to tell you about FanDuel. It's great to be in the midst of baseball season. Nothing like watching a game. Great weather, cold drink, and a little action on FanDuel Sportsbook. If you have never bet on baseball before, now is the perfect time to give that a shot. FanDuel is letting new users swing for the fences risk-free as you'll get up to $1,000 back if your first bet doesn't win. And once you have an account, you can get up to $25 back each day if your same game parlay bet falls one leg short. This way you can combine multiple baseball bets for an even bigger win all season long. There's a reason that FanDuel Sportsbook is America's number one sportsbook. The app is simple to use. It's got great odds on all different betting markets, unique fun bet types like same game parlay and always on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And when you win, FanDuel will pay you your winnings in as little as 24 hours. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code CHAT. 
to get in on the action. That's FanDuel Sportsbook, promo code CHAT. And games on Thursday afternoon include the best team in the National League, the San Francisco Giants hosting the worst team in the majors, the Arizona Diamondbacks. And starting for the Giants is their ace this season, Kevin Gaussman, who, yes, the Nationals did beat last Saturday afternoon, but who also, yes, has an ERA on the season of 143. The Giants certainly appear to be the play. 21 plus and present Colorado, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, or West Virginia. First on my real money wager, only for risk-free bet. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site. Credit that expires in seven days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanal.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 109-WITH-IT, Indiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 100-GAMBLER, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Virginia. Tennessee, 1-800-889-9789. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Here's the wind and the 2-1. Gomes swings and belts it high in the air to deep left. Gamble going back, looking up, going, going, and gone. Goodbye. Another home run for Jan Gomes. Back-to-back games for him. Bang, zoom, goes Gomes. All right, so with the Nationals offensively on Wednesday, look, it was not a good game again. Uh, the Nats won in spite of their offense, not because of their offense, just three runs. Did have eight hits, including two homers, so that was good. But otherwise, six singles. Nats did work four walks, but went just one of five with runners in scoring position. Some maddening occurrences in the middle of the game. Nats had the bases loaded with one out in the bottom of the fourth, scored no runs. Nats had the bases loaded with one out in the bottom of the sixth, scored no runs. If you look at your Nationals Pirates box score and you go all the way down to Victor Robles in this game, he went 0 for 4, left seven men on base in the ballgame. Not good. But the Nationals do win the game, and they win the game thanks to one of multiple former Pirates on the team. The aforementioned Josh Bell, who has a cleanup batter on Wednesday, went 2 for 3 with a two-run homer, a single, and a walk. That two-run homer ended up looming large. Bell smashing that, a two-out, two-run shot to right center, 
in the bottom of the seventh for a 3-0 Nats lead, the homer going a projected 390 feet for StatCast. Bell also had a one-out five-pitch walk in the bottom of the fourth, had a leadoff single in the bottom of the sixth, despite having been down to the count at 1.12. In another instance, by the way, of Bell doing well in a count in which uh, he's down at one point uh, with a couple of strikes on him. But, you know, that home run in a moment, you felt like, all right, well, that, that seals the deal. Because the Pirates got some guys on base, ended up scoring the run, hand gives up the back-to-back singles in the top of the ninth inning, that homer ended up, I thought, looming larger than we maybe thought at the time of the home run. Yeah, the way I felt about that homer to make it 3 nothing is the way I've been typically feeling about the Nationals when they give up a late homer to go down 3 nothing. You're thinking, okay, well, that's it. They're not going to come back from that. And yeah, they scored one, the Pirates did, but it, it never really felt like this was in doubt the rest of the way. So that was very important. It turned into a nice series for all of the ex-Bucks against their former team. Bell, Harrison, and Mercer. I think it was a combined 7 for 17. Uh, The homer, some walks. Mercer had the great web gem on Tuesday night at third base. So a nice job by then in in what was, you know, a little bit of an emotional series, especially for Bell because he had just been traded over the last uh, winter. So he's still close with a lot of those guys. Nice series for him. Nice series for the ex-Pirates. And I'm not even going to talk about the bases loaded stuff because it's just, it's gotten ridiculous at this point. I don't know what to say anymore about it, except it does feel like a lot of times, and it certainly was the case in this game, the wrong guys were at the plate with the bases loaded. It was Mercer, Robles twice, and then Zimmerman. That's the right guy at the plate. And he hit it well to the warning track. But I don't know. You, you thought they broke something on Tuesday with the Grand Slam, but they were right back to the old ways, 0 for 4 with the bases loaded. A game they could have blown open and they just can't do that. No, uh, they like refuse to do that. It's really maddening if you're a Nats fan. It was good to see Jan Gomes hit another home run, had a uh, solo homer in a game, went out solo shot, bottom of the second, had a one out single in the bottom of the fourth inning. But again, you know, the offense was not very good. I mean, Trey Turner off his four hit night on Tuesday night was back to struggling on Wednesday, 0 for 4 with a couple of strikeouts. Juan Soto had another underwhelming game in another underwhelming series, one for four with a single and a strikeout, had a brutal double play again, grounding into a full count, one, six, three double play for the second and third outs in the bottom of the first. Soto over the course of the three-game sweep of the Pirates, three for 12 with three singles and no walks. He's right back to not hitting for power. Soto in that four-game split with the Giants this past weekend, one for 11 with a single and two walks. So Juan Soto, so far on this homestand, four for 23 with nothing but singles, four singles and just two walks. He's not even drawing a bunch of walks. So we're right back to having the Juan Soto conversation. And Kyle Schwarber was again the leadoff batter in this game. So he ends up being the leadoff batter in all three games in this series, had a leadoff single on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the first. Dare I say, Kyle Schwarber is the new every game leadoff man. Can we say that or not yet? Well, they're 5-0 and when he leads off. So yeah, he's the new leadoff man. They're not changing that again go. until something goes wrong. I mean, absolutely. Not that he had a big impact in this game, but leadoff single in the first inning. And hey, as we've said, Davey Martinez is just a little stitious, not superstitious, but he's going to stick with this and uh, continue with it as long as it, it can, you know, leading to good success for the team. In Soto's case, I feel like we're back where we were a couple weeks ago, hitting the ball on the ground a lot, not driving it. He still looks a little bit lost up there. It is troubling. It's a nice opposite field single in the seventh to set up the Bell homer. But that double play, that's 10 double plays now. We're only 65 games into the season. And he missed a few games, remember, when the shoulder was hurt. So it's not good. It's not good. He's got to figure it out. I don't know why this is happening, but this is not who Juan Soto is. And if they're going to have a good weekend against the Mets, he's going to have to be a bigger part of it than he was this. 
All right, so you mentioned the Starling Castro situation. Starling Castro started just one game in this series. It was the first game. Jordy Mercer ended up being the national starting third baseman in games two and three in the series as the Nats on Wednesday put Starling Castro on the restricted list and recalled Luis Garcia from AAA Rochester. I know Davey in his pregame press conference told you guys that Castro has some family matters to which he needs to attend. Um, I guess we don't know much more than that. Do we have any sense on when Castro might be back? No, it is up in the air. And so the way this works, uh, this is, you know, a, a complicated matter when you put a player on the restricted list. So he officially comes off the 40-man roster. And this is a, a transaction that can be used for a variety of different reasons. It can be because a player is refusing to report to the team for whatever reason. It can be because he's unable to play or has even announced his intentions to retire but the team still has the rights to him, uh, so it's not like he could just suddenly come back and play for somebody else. Or, as it was in this case, it can be used if the player needs to leave the team for a non-injury reason, a non-bereavement reason, because of either an issue with his family or with himself, and needs to take some time off. So we really don't know details here. Aside from Tuesday afternoon, remember, and, and you were on this, so I give you credit because you asked me why was Castro not in the lineup, and I told you that the lineup came out late that Davey had told us he had to check on some guys. And I assumed, oh, something must be up with Starlin, and I thought maybe he was banged up, and then forgot to ask him about it after the game. Well, it turns out they did find out before the game yesterday that whatever is going on was going on, and Davey said to him, you need to go be with your family. That is more important. Take care of that. You come back here when you're ready. And so he wasn't even in the dugout or in the stadium for Tuesday's game. So they formally made the move on Wednesday and called up Luis Garcia to replace him. They will give him whatever time he needs, Officially, the team's not obligated to pay a player when they're on the restricted list. I don't know if the Nationals are. The way Davey spoke about it, though, it said we're giving 100% support to Starlin. Family comes first. So I, there's no animosity here, I don't think. I don't think there's anything devious going on, anything like that. Uh, it's just a personal situation he has to take care of. And maybe it was affecting him in the field. We won't ever know, to be sure. But I think we all acknowledge that Starlin Castro has not been the player that he was supposed to be so far this year. And if it turns out that there were off the field matters weighing on his mind, it at least explains a little bit, perhaps what's going on. So let him go home, take care of that whenever he's ready, come back. They do expect him to be back, but uh, they're not putting any timeline on it. So in the in the meantime, I think you're going to see some Harrison at third, you're going to see some Mercer at third, you're going to see some Harrison and Garcia at second and mix and match based on the matchups. And we'll see how it goes. With Luis Garcia, I want to say this the right way. So They have now called him up a bunch of times, only to send him back down every time. We'll see what happens this time. But you don't normally see this with a guy who you hold in high regard as a prospect, right? Where you keep jerking him back and forth between the majors and the minors. Do you think this is doing more harm than good to Luis Garcia, that he's constantly being yanked up and then sent back down? Does this maybe say that they don't view him as the highly regarded prospect as maybe they had viewed him? What do you make of this? Because I kind of am like, I want to see Luis Garcia play, and if he's going to become a a fixture on the Nationals infield for years to come, I want to see that. And if not, I want to see them stop doing this with him, where, like, you know, he gets called up, and then they never are hesitant to send him right back down. And it's kind of like, do you like the guy? Do you believe in the guy? Or or don't you? Where are you at right now with Luis Garcia? Yeah, I think this is um, a byproduct of what their other options are. Let's not ignore this fact. Carter Keboom, who was supposed to be the everyday third baseman this season, was not called up when their starting third baseman was just taken off the roster. They don't have a third baseman right now, and they chose not to call up 
Carter Keboom, even though he's hitting better at AAA over the last several weeks. So that says something to me about where Keboom's standing is within the organization. Now, I think it also does say that they view Garcia as a better option for them right now. And I agree with you. You only call him up if he's going to play. And I think we will see him a decent amount. Probably against righties, he's going to be starting at second base most days. I think they'll find the matchups that make more sense. If it's facing a lefty, he probably sits Harrison's at second, Mercer's at third. But I would imagine as long as Castro is gone, that Garcia is going to see a good amount of playing time. The thing that they don't want to do is have him be up here, but sitting on the bench, you know, more than just a day or two. So that that's the key. If there is playing time for him, he'll be up here. If not, they will send him back down. And I think that's the key is they do believe in him long term because they want him starting wherever he is. That's the sign of that. If they were keeping him up here, but having him come off the bench, then I think that would be an indication that maybe they don't think of him as highly for the long term. Yeah, that's a great point about Keyboom. He could not be more buried on the organizational depth chart right now. I mean, this tells you everything you need to know about him. I wonder about Garcia. We've talked about this. He's well-regarded within national circles, but he's not like one of these, you know, top 100 prospects or anything like that. So maybe we just have to recalibrate things with him and like, you know, this is kind of what he is. He's not going to be like their second baseman for the next 10 years or anything like that. He's, he's a piece and they can use him and hopefully he develops into something. But I don't know. I, I don't like this that he keeps coming up and then being sent down. So we'll see what uh, this latest stint ends up being for Luis Garcia. Well, next up is the biggest series of the season to date. It uh, hopefully is the first of many big series to come for the Nationals in this series, but a huge four-game set against the National League East leading New York Mets at Nationals Park. Four games in three days. We're getting used to this. This will be the second consecutive weekend of this. Friday night game, one seven oh five. Saturday, there's a doubleheader, a split doubleheader. Saturday afternoon, one oh five. Saturday evening, six oh five. And then you have game four Sunday afternoon, at 105. Now we know Eric Fetty will start game one Friday night. We know Patrick Corbin will start game four Sunday afternoon. And then Mark, I guess we know who will start Saturday, but not the order in which they will start. John Lester and Joe Ross. Yeah, I don't know if they're going to, how they're going to base that. <laughs> a lot of times they let the veteran of the two decide which game they want to start. Sometimes the veteran might say, yeah, give me the night game so I can show up late. So that may be what it is. I'm not sure. This is interesting though. High-profile series, obviously, and these are two teams that have some of the best pitchers in baseball, but Max Scherzer will not be pitching this series. Steven Strasburg will not be pitching this series. Jacob deGrom, who actually had to come out of the Mets game on Wednesday early, will not be pitching in this series. So it's not going to be nearly as star-studded as you would expect. Now, maybe this could play in the Nationals' hands. It might actually give them a chance to score some runs and maybe win some of these games, but I think this is really going to be a telling weekend. I'm not saying they have to win three out of four, but boy, that would go a long way. They could they could get themselves to what, within like three, four games of first place if they were to do that. But I think it's a bare minimum split two and two. Anything less than that is a, is a big problem, especially again, when you're not facing DeGrom. But I think more than anything, it's a measuring stick, okay? We've seen them now clearly look superior to the dregs of the league, to the Pirates, to the Orioles, to the Marlins. We've seen them kind of hang in there with some better teams. But here is a chance now to face the team that's atop your division and at least so far has looked like the best team in the NL East because the Braves have had problems, the Phillies have had problems. So how do they stack up with them? Do we come out of this weekend and say, no matter what the record is uh, over the weekend, do we come out and say, yeah, you know what, they're, they're kind of right there with the Mets? Then I think that it changes our outlook. Or do we come out of it and say, man, they didn't belong in the same field as that team and they lost three out of four and they deserve to lose three out of four. 
now it's a problem and you are concerned about whether they can turn this thing around. So I think this is a really important weekend for them, both to try to win two out of four or three out of four, but more importantly, just how they look. Do they look like they belong in the same class as the Mets? This also is the start of a brutal stretch to the schedule before the All-Star break. Yeah, we're not that far from the All-Star break, believe it or not, but you have a four-game series against the Mets, then you have a two-game series at the Phillies, then does come a four-game series at the Marlins, but after that, a one-game set against the Mets as a makeup game, then a two-game series against the Rays, then a four-game series against the Dodgers, then a four-game series at the Padres, then a three-game series at the Giants. That's like a murderer's row of what the Nats are looking at down the stretch here until the All-Star break. So we're going to know come the All-Star break where we are with this team. Because if the Nats can keep their head above water and, dare I say, even emerge out of this stretch with something close to a winning record, then I think it's time to get excited here. Because, you know, it's one thing with the Nats so far this year, they have fattened up on some bad competition. Like a good chunk of their wins are against the Orioles and the Marlins and the Diamondbacks and now the Pirates. But seeing them split with the Giants recently, seeing them split with the Rays recently. You say to yourself, all right, that's some good competition. Nats have more than held their own against that competition. Now really, truly comes a big boy stretch of the schedule. So going to be very interesting to see what the Nationals end up doing. All right, time for our special guest. Uh, This is a treat. When it comes to the Negro Leagues, nobody talks about the Negro Leagues better than the man who we're about to go to here. Bob Kendrick, he is the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. He's also the host of a podcast of his own, Black Diamonds, which focuses on the history of the Negro Leagues. And we take you to that conversation right now. We had a catcher in the Negro National League, Josh Gibson. In my opinion, the best hidden catcher I have ever seen. He was a boyish and he had charisma. He loved to be around him. Opposing players liked him. Pitchers liked him, even though he'd kill a pitcher, you know. So the Nationals winning the World Series in 2019 marked the first time that a Washington, D.C. baseball team won a World Series since the 1924 Washington Senators. But the Nats winning the World Series in 19 was not the first time that a team that played a good chunk of its games in D.C. won a baseball championship since the 24 Senators. The Homestead Grays won the Negro World Series in 1948, also won the Negro World Series in 1943 and 44. The best player on the Grays in 43 and 44 was maybe the best player in Negro League's history, Josh Gibson. And we are thrilled to talk Josh Gibson and Homestead Grays now with a very special guest. Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro League's Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. He's also the host of a podcast, Black Diamonds, which focuses on the history of the Negro Leagues. Bob, it's an honor to have you on. How are you? I'm great, man. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate you coming on very much. So before we get going, can you explain the dynamics of the Homestead Grays? The team was based in Pennsylvania, played home games at Forbes Field, but came to adopt D.C. as like a second home city, played home games at Griffith Stadium. Why did that happen? Yeah, you know, it was was really interesting because that is a rare set of circumstances that a team would play out of both cities. Now, eventually they settled in on D.C. So by the time we get to 43 and they win that championship, they're playing predominantly from D.C. in their home games at Griffith Stadium. And so, but that is a rarity to have a team just not flat out relocate to another city. But the Grays spent a considerable amount of time playing home games in both stadiums. And I can't think of another Negro League team that did that. You know, you may have seen a little bit of that with the New York Black Yankees there at 
Hinchliffe Stadium, which is being restored now, and they may have bounced around a little bit, but none to the magnitude of what we saw with the Homestead Grays until they settled in D.C. And you'll see that 43 team has a W on their sleeve. And at that time, they were pretty much aligned with the city of D.C. So, yeah, along those lines, I was going to ask, because you have sort of both cities still, Pittsburgh and Washington, kind of embrace them as their own. Obviously, the Nationals have gone out of their way to make sure to include the Grays in everything they do. Do you think it's okay for that? Is it all right for both the Pirates and the Nationals to kind of embrace them as their own? Oh, absolutely, because they have a storied history in both of those cities. And, fellas, when we're talking about the Homestead Grays, we're talking about one of the greatest baseball franchises, not in Black baseball history, but in baseball history. And we're talking about a team that was chalk filled with great stars. And so, no, it is more than appropriate for both cities to lay claim to this great team because both cities can legitimately lay claim to this great baseball franchise. So Josh Gibson is such an interesting guy to read about, to talk about. One of the more fascinating things with his career is the home run total. The home run total, what it is, has been a big thing for years. As best as we can tell, what is Josh Gibson's career home run total? It is so difficult to really quantify because it all depends on which games you count. You know, uh, the numbers that are being kind of forecasted as we look at the epic decision that Major League Baseball made to integrate the Negro League's statistics into the annals of baseball history will show a diminished number of home runs for Josh Gibson. It won't be the mythical-like numbers that we believe occurred. It just occurred against all levels of competition, including major leaguers. But the game totals that you'll see will be specifically attached to league games. And they just didn't play that many league games. So if we see 250 home runs from Josh Gibson in his league play, someone's going to say, well, that doesn't appear to be Babe Ruth-like. So now you got to delve into the numbers a little bit deeper and start to think about how many at-bats. What would this equate to over a 162-game season? And then you probably will get a more representable number. But for me, I believe every home run the man hit should count. I don't care who they were against because it was not their choice, fellas, to play in the Negro Leagues. They had to play in the Negro League. Yeah, the major leaguers were the major leagues wouldn't allow them in, so they played however they could, whenever they could. And to me, it doesn't diminish the real power of Josh Gibson. As I described, it is almost mythical-like. But as I tell people all the time, the power was very real. And to get an even greater quantitative look at Gibson, just look at what the numbers he put up playing everywhere around this globe. Because there, the stats were really well kept. And when you start looking at what he did in Venezuela, in Puerto Rico, in Cuba, in Mexico, those numbers will tell you that we're talking about one of the most prolific, not power hitters, one of the most prolific hitters this game has ever seen. And his name was Joshua Gibson. See, I actually like this because I think the mythology kind of helps raise him to another level, you know? So maybe, maybe we don't need to know what the exact number was. Well, you know what, Mark? That's kind of my mindset. When we learn about the stats and that whole nine yards, I said all along that the stats are more contextual. They will help that fan that needs to have these numbers to help, again, quantify how great these players were. 
the stats will never tell the real story. You cannot reduce the Negro Leagues to statistical data. It will leave a very incomplete uh, story. And so, as I've said on a number of occasions, the stats won't show that J.L. Wilkinson bought an airplane for Satchel Paige and would literally hire him out to go pitch for other teams and then fly him back to join the Kansas City Monarchs. The stats are not going to show those games, you know, and all of those strikeouts. And, you know, it's just not it's not going to show some of those games that were played that weren't considered league games. And so while I commend the historians who did a wonderful job of kind of unearthing these numbers to a point that led us to that epic day in December when Major League Baseball made the announcement, I do want to caution folks that you take them really for what they're worth because the Negro Leagues are much bigger than the numbers that will be presented. And and again, it takes someone who really understands numbers to kind of get an inside understanding of this thing. It's over my head, to be honest with but (laughs) but I'm with you. I use the analogy that Babe Ruth was Paul Bunyan for Major League, Major League fans. Josh Gibson was our John Henry. And, And I want John Henry to live on forever. I don't want the mythology around these legendary players or their larger than life persona to ever die. No, no, Josh Gibson was as prolific a power hitter as this sport has ever seen. And I know Al made the the statement in his lead-in that he may have been the greatest player in Black baseball history. Man, I am one that believes that Josh Gibson could have quite possibly been the greatest baseball player of all time. When you look at what he did as a catcher, he dominated this game, fellas, as a catcher. And what I oftentimes remind folks is he wasn't a good catcher. He was a great catcher, you know, described with a rifle arm. He's throwing guys out from the crouch back in that era. My friend, the late, great John Buck O'Neill would say of Josh that he had complete control of his pitching staff. So he called a great game, was a good running catcher. So he's going to steal you 20, 25 bases or more to go with that big bat. And as I tell my guests all the time, when I say big bat, I mean big bat, 40 (laughs) ounce, 41 inches, man. And and when you look at the pictures of him, he's not choking up on that bat. He's got it gripped down below the knob. And Buck O'Neill would describe him in this manner, that he had the eyes of Ted Williams and the power of Babe Ruth rolled into one dynamic package. As they would say, his outs were loud outs. Yeah, the the third baseman and the shortstop were damn near left field when Gibson came up there, man. Because you're not creeping in on Josh, you get killed. And I guess that was the Negro League's version of a shift before we even knew anything about a shift. And so they were basically saying, Josh, if you want to bunt it, go right ahead. Yeah. That's excellent. We're talking with Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. So, of course, it was Jackie Robinson who broke Major League Baseball's color barrier in 1947. But it was in 1945 that Branch Rickey signed Jackie. Josh Gibson was still going strong in 1945. 
To what extent, if at all, was Gibson a candidate to break the color barrier or at least play in Major League Baseball? Well, he was absolutely a candidate right there. And, and you all about yeah, Clark Griffith wanted to sign Josh Gibson. He wanted to sign Buck Leonard and Josh Gibson. And he had, I think he got a little bit afraid because he knew he was going to be ostracized by his peers. But then there was also a level of self-preservation that was a part of this equation as well. Because you go back and you'll, you'll find that the Homestead Grays were outdrawing the Washington Senators. They were filling up Griffith Stadium and the senators were getting a percentage of the gate and likely all of the concession. He didn't have to work that hard to get those dollars. And so the question is, if I make this move to sign Buck Leonard and Josh Gibson and Buck Leonard, dazzling first baseman, you know, he's ripping line drives all over Griffith Stadium and Josh is hitting balls where no mere mortal had ever hit them. And Clark Griffith is watching this in his very own ballpark. And so the temptation was there. But if I signed them and I put the Negro Leagues out of business, which was absolutely going to happen, I'm going to cut off this source of revenue. Now, and here's the dilemma, because if he signs Leonard and Gibson, his senators jump right into the forefront of contention to win a pennant and possibly a World Series because Leonard and Gibson were that good. But the money. And I tell people all the time, anytime they say it ain't about the money, it's always about the money. And he decided that the risk reward on this situation was too great. So I'm going to stay with the money and I'm going to back off of this set of circumstances. The one thing that I always like to share with folks as it relates to Branch Rickey and how he got Jackie Robinson, because we'll oftentimes say that he signed Jackie Robinson away from the Kansas City Monarchs. Now, he took Jackie Robinson away from the Kansas City Monarchs. Jackie Robinson was under contract with the Monarchs and J.L. Wilkinson, Al, who owned the Kansas City Monarchs, never got a dime. Or as my, my late mother would say, not one red cent did he get for a player who was under contract. But J.L. Wilkinson, unlike Effa Manley, Effa Manley fought Ricky. See, Ricky had actually signed Monty Irvin unknowingly, had signed Monty Irvin. And when Miss Manley found out about this, she was ready to raise holy hell. And, and so Ricky did not need this fight on his hand. And so Mrs. Manley essentially blocked Monty Irvin from being the first. Monty had just gotten back from World War II. And as he described, he was suffering from what then they call shell shock. Today, we would call it post-traumatic syndrome. But Effa Manley was also standing in the way because she was prepared to fight Ricky. And Ricky did not need a fight on his hand at that time, because as you can well imagine, he's trying to be as stealth-like as possible so that the other owners don't join in solidarity to try to block him before he can even get this movement going. And that's when he turned his sight here to Kansas City, where Jackie Robinson was playing for the great Kansas City Monarchs. Well, J.L. Wilkinson could not fight Ricky back. You know why? Because J.L. Wilkinson was white. There was no way in the world that this white man who had made his entire living in black baseball could stand up and publicly protest what virtually every black person in this country had been waiting on. And that was for a black man to finally get the opportunity to play in the major leagues. So 
Wilkinson was pretty much stuck between that proverbial rock and a hard place. It was damned if he did and damned if he didn't. And so publicly, he said all the right things. Privately, he was seething. And he wasn't seething because a black man was about to go play in the major leagues. But this black man that you're about to take away from me, you are going to put me out of business. And Wilkie was absolutely right. He sold his interest in the Monarchs to his business partner, T.Y. Baird, the year after Jackie takes the field with the Brooklyn Dodgers, 1948. And so he knew the handwriting was on the wall. It wasn't a matter of if, it was simply a matter of when the Negro Leagues were going to fold. And fortunately for the Negro League owners, Bill Veck, who had a heart for these Black players, he purchased the contract of Larry Doby. And now he paid Mrs. Manley what ultimately would equate to about $15,000 by the time it was all said and done to get Larry Doby, a future Hall of Famer. That is what opened the door for other Negro League owners to start selling their star talent to the major leagues. But again, the major league owners were getting these star quality players for pennies on the dollar. Can you imagine $15,000 for Larry Doby, who became a future Hall of Famer? I think you could look at that same price tag for Henry Aaron and Willie Mays. I mean, you could not have bought that kind of talent for $15,000. Even back in that era, those players would have went for six figures to be able to bring them into your organization. That's fascinating stuff. And it, it reminds us how, what, 70, 80 years later, we like to think, oh, baseball is just a business now and it didn't used to be that way. No, it's always been a business. <laughs> it's always been a business. Always. We acquired a set of letters that were written by the, La- the Yankees' managing partner, Larry McPhail. And these letters, guys, were, were this letter, I should say, is about a three, four page letter, was written in 1945 to then Mayor LaGuardia. And of course, there was this groundswell that was building putting pressure on Major League Baseball to look at its segregated policies. And Mayor LaGuardia was really pushing this issue as well. And so Larry McPhail writes this letter to the mayor. And in the letter, he basically outlines why this is a bad idea to integrate Major League Baseball. And it's interesting because within the content of the letter, he would say some things that certainly had some merit. For instance, he would say, well, if we sign Black players, we will put the Negro Leagues out of business. Again, right on. But then in the next verse, he'll say, well, you know, they lack the faculties to play in our league. Now, I don't know when you had to be a Rhodes Scholar to play baseball, but that was the prevailing belief that these athletes weren't smart enough to play in the major leagues. And then he finally, however gets to the real crux of the story. And this is why I always say, whenever they say it ain't about the money, it's always about the money. In 1945, the New York Yankees made over $100,000 off of the Negro League because they were renting Yankee Stadium. They were going across the river, renting Bears Stadium over in Newark and here in Kansas City, Blue Stadium, which was their minor league franchise. And uh, again, it goes back to the fact that they were getting a percentage of the game and likely all of the concessions, and they didn't have to hardly lift a finger to make that money. And that was primarily off of the Kansas City Monarchs. And so needless to say, the New York Yankees were in no hurry to see integration 
because they were going to lose that source of revenue that, again, that $100,000 in 1945, that's pretty good paper. You know, $100,000 is pretty good right now. And $100,000 in 1945, that was a lot of money. And they didn't have to work hard to get it. And so the Yankees were one of the last teams to integrate. They were trying to ride this thing out as long as they possibly could. You mentioned the Homestead Grays outdrawing the Washington Senators in D.C. <laughs> That's amazing. It's also not stunning given the Senators' history. I- I'm just curious about this. This may be kind of an odd question, but crowds at Homestead Grays games, crowds at Negro Leagues games, were they all black crowds or did white people attend Negro Leagues games? No, throughout the history of the Negro Leagues, there were a number of white fans who went to those games. And oftentimes, depending on what part of the country, now in Birmingham, we weren't going to sit together under no circumstances. But in, in northern areas and even here in the Midwest, those audiences were sitting together. There was no separation. And as coincidentally, at, at major league games, if they allowed black fans in to watch a major league game, we were going to be isolated. We would sit down the left or right field lines And believe it or not, fellas, we would actually be separated from white fans with a chicken wire barrier. And we use that same chicken wire here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum today to separate all of our visitors in a symbolic gesture from the centerpiece of the Negro Leagues Museum, which is known as the Field of Legends. But at Negro League games, by and large, we were sitting together, sitting side by side, watching what many would say the best baseball being played in this country without question the most entertaining brand of baseball that was being played in this country. And then we saw those numbers grow even more so during World War II, because while a number of Negro League players, young Negro League players were called into service, the superstar players were a little too old. So the Satchel Pages, the Cool Papa Bells, the Josh Gibsons, they were still playing. And so now white fans moved over in large numbers to go watch the Negro Leagues because, again, they could get their appetite fulfilled by still seeing great baseball because, as as we know, the war hurt uh, Major League Baseball considerably. There's so many what-ifs with all this, and and I think probably one of the great what-ifs related to Josh Gibson, that tragically he dies at age 35 in, in January of 47, three months before Jackie Robinson makes his debut. And so I'm curious, like, what could have been for him? At, now, at 35, maybe he's not going to have a long career in the big leagues, but do you think he, there could have been something there? Yeah, at 35, Josh was a shell of himself. Now, again, we're comparing Josh to Josh. We're not comparing Josh to just the average Joe. When That's the same thing I say. When Satchel gets to the major leagues in 1948, Satchel is a shell of himself. So he couldn't bring it up there at 105 like he used to, but it still was in the 90s, you know, even at an ungodly age. But as we know, Josh was suffering from a brain tumor. So even in 45, when he was still putting up representable numbers, he wasn't right. He was having these severe headaches. And, uh, you know, you hear these stories of him being an alcoholic, a drug addict. Well, Honestly, the headaches were so severe and nothing over the counter would alleviate the pain. And so, yes, he did start self-medicating, just trying to figure out what the heck is going on until he discovers that he has the brain tumor. And once he discovers that he has the brain tumor, 
Of course, he refused to have surgery because he was afraid that he'd be left in a vegetative state. Well, as we all know, operating on the brain is tricky today, no less in the 1940s. And, and so he would eventually succumb to that brain tumor by way of stroke, as you mentioned, Mark, January 20th, 1947. And it was a tragic ending to one of this game's all-time greatest players. But for me, when we start to, you know, it's always an age-old question of what if. What if the doors had opened sooner? In my mind, I don't think there's any doubt that the record books would be entirely different. All we have to do is look at what happened when Jackie breaks the color barrier. And one of my favorite factoids here at the museum, from 1949 until 1959, nine of 11 National League most valuable players were former Negro League stars. Now, we ain't even talked about rookies of the year. These are MVPs who were former Negro League stars. And you have to understand that the American League wasn't feeling this. They were not in a hurry to bring this Black talent in. The American League, and I go back to something that Bob Gibson said, the late, great Bob Gibson said that they thought the American League was a place where old ball players went to die. <laughs> and that's even pre-DH. <laughs> because the National League was so aggressive signing this black talent, and all of a sudden the pace of the game in the National League sped up. And you've seen this great play. I contend that... What we saw after Jackie Robinson's breaking of the color barrier up and through 1960, you saw the largest influx of talent that Major League Baseball had gotten in one time span in the history of his game. Well, as I remind people, they didn't learn how to play after 1947. Yeah, they were playing great baseball well before 1947. So if you get a Satchel Page in his prime, or if you get a young Josh Gibson or a young Monty Irvin, Monty Irvin gets to the major leagues guys when he's 30 years old and he still has a prolific career at 30. But as I tell people all the time and you hear all the players from the Negro League say, if they got Monty when he was 19, 20 years old, there was nothing that Monty Irvin could not do. And Monty Irvin had the entire package. You know, he was a five-tool guy with movie star good looks. He had superstardom written all over him. And But the same could be said for the likes of the great Matinda Higo or Oscar Charleston, Ray Dandridge, who was named MVP of the Minneapolis Millers. They were the New York Giants AAA team. Dandridge, who I believe is the greatest third baseman to have ever played this game, he's named MVP of the Millers, fellas, when he was 38 years old. Of course, there was no room in the major leagues for a 38-year-old black third baseman. They were never going to take him and have him take a young white kid's job in that era. So Ray never got that opportunity to fulfill that dream. Cool Papa Bell would have been a star in any league. He stole bases in any league. You know, so this proliferation of talent that was in place well before Jackie breaks the color barrier. And for me, I look even I look at Jackie, Jackie Robinson, and people always pose this question to me. Was he the best player in the Negro League? And I think we all know the answer is no, he wasn't. He wasn't the best player on his own Kansas City Monarch team. 
And as I oftentimes say, this is not to disparage Jackie. It is about the depth of talent that was there in the Negro League. Jackie Robinson is one of this nation's greatest athletes ever. He's four sports star. And baseball was his weakest sport. Yeah, he much better basketball, football, track athlete than a baseball player. And some say an even better tennis player. So there was nothing that Jackie could not do. And yet he turns himself into a Hall of Fame caliber ball player. But he took that style that he learned playing in the Negro League. And then he just excelled at this sport. But there were players who were far better baseball players than Jackie was at that time. And that's why, you know, I don't even hesitate to think that had the doors open sooner, the record books would be entirely different. It is such an important part of baseball history. Certainly should never be forgotten. The Negro Leagues, Josh Gibson, the Homestead Grays. You can find out more about all of this by going to nlbm.com. That's nlbm.com. Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. It's been such a treat to have you on. Really appreciate it. All the best to you. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for helping keep the legacy of the Negro Leagues alive. We need these voices out there helping promote this very rich and powerful history. And we appreciate what you guys are doing. We appreciate what the Nats have done as a uh, baseball franchise to continue to celebrate and remember the heritage of our sport. Thank you so much, Bob. Have a great day, man. Thank you. All right. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, we really appreciate Bob Kendrick joining us here on the Nats Chat Podcast. And Mark, listening to those stories, listening to the way things were for the Negro League players and the way things went down in the Negro Leagues, some of it is so incredible. You're like, did that really happen in our country? But of course it did. An unfortunate time, but also a very interesting time. From a baseball perspective, there is so much to get into when it comes to the Negro Leagues, the teams, and the great players like Josh Gibson. And it's really important to keep telling these stories out because, sadly, there aren't that many of them left uh, who are still with us. And so we need people like Bob who have spent their lives (laughs) learning about and sharing the stories of these great players to spread the word about it and keep us all informed of it because there's going to come a day here soon where we don't have first-person accounts of it anymore. And it it was – it's both fun, but it's also – it hurts you to hear about some of the things he was talking about, about – the separate areas for fans to be in, the fences between them, the what-ifs of what could have been if some of these players, all-time great players, had been allowed to play in the major leagues and what that might have meant for the history of baseball. So I found it a fascinating discussion. He is such an engaging person and has so many great stories to share. I really enjoyed it. And and I learned you know more about Josh Gibson from this and more about the Homestead Grays. And I think it's important for all of us to learn more about them because they really did play an important part in this city's baseball history. Yeah, and that's the thing with Washington, D.C. It has one of the most unique histories with baseball of any city. And it's an odd history, right, because D.C. has twice lost a baseball team and the Senators, but it's also a very rich history in that the greatest pitcher ever pitched in Washington, D.C., Walter Johnson, and arguably the greatest player in not just Negro League's history, but among the great players in baseball history. Josh Gibson was a player for a team that played a bunch of its home games in the city. Now, of course, you have the Nationals and the unique situation with that team of coming from Montreal and then eventually winning a World Series. So, you know, it's not necessarily how you would draw it up, but it is a very rich and deep history 
when it comes to baseball in the nation's capital. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can always email us too, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including sending in your voice memos with your questions and your takes on the Nationals. Big, big weekend coming up. Four games in three days against the NL East leading New York Mets. Also, Nats Chat Podcast t-shirts remain available for this big series against the Mets. What better way to show your support than wear a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt at the ballpark. And as is always the case, wear your shirt to the game, tweet out a photo, we'll retweet it, we'll like it. Mark will even come by and say hello if he gets the opportunity uh, over the course of the game. You can get your Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt, natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. 1-0. Bell swings and launches one to right center. Back goes Polanco on the track, looking up, and there it goes. Josh Bell has homered against the Pirates. A two-run shot is ninth of the year, and the Nationals have some insurance. They lead it 3 to nothing.